Welcome to the University of Washington's Political Economy Forum. We bring together diverse scholars, policymakers, and citizens to discuss current public policy issues, to inform the public about them, and to find evidence-based solutions. Feel free to visit our website at uwpoliticaleconomy.com. We publish new episodes of this podcast every week. If you have questions or suggestions for discussion topics, please contact us on Twitter at ForumUW or email us at uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Hello, everyone. I'm Morgan Wack, your host for today's podcast. On today's episode, I'll be hosting a discussion with Dr. Chris Blattman, who is the Ramalee E. Pearson Professor of Global Conflict Studies at the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago, as well as the author of the forthcoming book, Why We Fight, The Roots of War and the Paths to Peace. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thanks. It's great to have you here. Uh, this is a wide-ranging book encompassing several conflicts and personal experiences and something of a synthesis of your longstanding work regarding conflict and what drives it. Can you start off by giving us just a bit of background on how this book came to be, as well as what drew you to be interested in the divisions between war and peace? Sure. I mean, there's so many stories, I guess, that led to this point. Uh, I I waited for years for someone to write this book. This isn't really just a book about my ideas or my research. In fact, that's the minority um, in many ways, it's trying to give this, I don't know, this gift of decades of research from every social science, from like the hard-earned experience of practitioners and boil it down for a general reader. And so a lot of people could have written this book, but nobody ever did. And so it felt like this secret that the rest of the world wasn't being let in on. And I would meet people, I would meet a village leader, I would meet a world leader. And these like ideas totally reshaped the way I thought about peace and conflict hadn't made it out there. And so eventually I decided that's what I'd do. Yeah, amazing. You talk about a conflict and peace, and but you take a very broad definition of, of war in, in the book. Um, and this includes everything from struggle between cartels uh, to village conflict to soccer hooligans in, in soccer stadiums, and as well as nations at war, um, yeah. such as Russia and, Ukraine, Russia and Ukraine right now. So what do these types of conflict have in common? How can something be so broad and still have the same uh, drivers or factors underneath? Right. I mean, I wanted to talk about prolonged fighting, which, which at the end of the day is, is, is I think really important to understand because it's not the optimal thing to do, right? We, whether it's economic groups struggling against one another, but who can use violence or whether they're political actors, you can always, uh, you know, Mao said war is just uh, politics with bloodshed and von Clausewitz said uh, war is politics by other means. And so they were, they just meant that these are, you know, bargaining and fighting are two sides of the same coin. And one of them is just horrendous, horrendous, right? And one of them is is not. And uh, it can be evil, it can be, it can be uh, uh, polarized, it can be um, cold-hearted, but it, it's not so destructive. And so I, I wanted to sort of talk about all these different phenomena, because I work at these lower levels, right? I work with a lot of criminal gangs and, 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 and almost criminalized rebels in, in Sub-Saharan Africa. So they're, they're not always political actors that are fighting. And I just think they're super different. All these things are super different, of course, but, but they share a lot in common and we can learn from them if we focus on what they have in common. Yeah, I think that gets to one of the main points of the book I took away from it uh, was sort of your focus, not just on what drives conflict, but what prevents it, which I think is a great way of framing things because so often, uh, you know, what uh, bleeds leads is very true in academia and in uh, journalism just as much as it is in, in television and the news. And so 
um, you, you quote something that says enemies prefer to loathe each other in peace. And so yeah. what, why is it, do you think that you focus so much on what keeps conflict from happening and what can we learn from the many instances that we don't hear about in textbooks because there wasn't bloody conflict yeah. and there wasn't actually war. So, you know, it seems like a strange thing to say in the middle of a conflict in Ukraine, right? And, and, and yet two weeks into the invasion, India accidentally lobbed a cruise missile at Pakistan and calm ensued, right? War is just so unimaginably costly between these two great countries, you know, and nuclear armed, but even if they weren't nuclear armed, it's just impossible to contemplate, or it's very difficult to contemplate. So it's a huge incentive to keep it peaceful. And so I, you know, I didn't write a book called Why We Don't Fight, and I title a chapter Why We Don't Fight, but that's an important starting point because it's all linked. We don't, we don't usually fight because it's too costly. War is what happens when we ignore those costs for some reason. And the book is walks us through how there's actually just so many reasons. And so it's all linked. So we have to start there. Otherwise, we sort of miss that cause of war. And then we miss the path to peace, which is, of course, making leaders and societies pay more attention to the costs that they're overlooking. Gotcha. Are there any instances that stick out in your mind other than the one you just mentioned, kind of from your own work, where mm -hmm. it seemed like there were quite a few factors that would be driving conflict? But it seems to there seem to be prolonged peace where yeah. you wouldn't expect. Well, I mean, one that I like, it's not from my own work per se, but I'd like to point people to, you know, American school children will learn about the US invasion of Afghanistan for decades. And very few of them will learn or maybe have ever learned about the US invasion of Haiti in 1994. And Colin Powell shows up and shows the dictator who just seized power a video feed of American troops and equipment taking off in dozens of planes from Fort Bragg and other. And, and he says that happened two hours ago. So they're almost here. And so, and, and, and the, and the coup leader, um, the junta basically capitulates right there. And, and so we don't, we don't pay as much attention to that because it didn't embroil us in a 20 year war. It actually led to an occupation and we still hear sometimes about that in the news. And it's not like that was like some happy, Haiti lived happily ever after that, right? But, but, a, real, but a real crisis was averted. Um, and so we, don't, we just don't talk about these quiet moments of compromise quite enough. Yeah, that's, that's a great example. I, I want to dig now into some of the underlying reasons that you give for, mm -hmm. for conflict to either occur or be avoided. I don't want to give them all away because I want people yeah. to buy the book, which was excellent. Right. Uh, but I, I have a few here that I thought it might be interesting to talk about in kind of contemporary contexts and things where way things are working um, out in the world today. So one of the five reasons for war, which you identify is unchecked interests. Yeah. Um, can you explain what that means in the context of incentives for war, as well as whether the shift towards sort of AI and unmanned uh, machinery might make more war less likely at scale? Sure. Yeah. So if we, we don't go to war because it's ridiculously costly, but of course, if our leaders don't bear those costs, then uh, if they're unchecked, they're not accountable to the people who bear the costs, then of course, they're going to ignore them. So they're going to be too ready to use violence is the core thing. So now that doesn't get us necessarily to war, but it definitely gets us in a more fragile situation. And then sometimes our leaders, our unchecked leaders have some private interest in, in going to war. Maybe it's uh, diamond mines in Liberia, or maybe it's a rally around the flag effect to try to win re-election, or maybe, um, you know, as many people accuse Vladimir Putin today of in his invasion, is he's, he's, 
he's threatened by Ukrainian democracy, not because Russians will be worse off their democracy, but because he would. That that there's a, this is a it's very dangerous for him to have this example of two democratic revolutions right on his border um, in the last 20 years in the Ukraine. And so, so these are all examples of private interests that, that some leader unaccountable to their people can pursue. And then to your question of what does it mean that if we can, we can get more targeted in our violence, you know, you think about, um, I think, I think it leaves some, I think it leads some to some, it gives leaders and countries options short of all out war for causing pain to their adversaries. So one thing that comes to mind is Israel has had repeated, um, has used has missiles and drones have, have used those repeatedly to uh, basically attack Iran or Syria or targets, I will say targets in Iran and Syria without uh, this sort of precision strikes have enabled it to engage in something that is kind of war, right? It's it's aggressive, it's the use of violence, but it's it's not a prolonged state of violence and struggle. And, and so it may be that targeted precision, not very costly things actually make some kinds of violence more likely because these tools can be wielded without this sort of escalation risk. You know, that said, um, why this hasn't escalated into all a war, well, it's hugely costly. Both sides have incentives. It's very risky to do this thing, right? So, so we've always had precision strike border skirmishes. So I, I sort of say like, well, border skirmishes make small wars more likely, brief spates of conflict, like the ability to do that, things that don't escalate. And so maybe we should just put these technologies in that category of things we've always had. We've always had the ability to have short battles. Um, and, and that's better, you know, it's better not to have any at all, but if you're going to have battles, it's better to have short ones. And that's why they're more common. So in, in the context of, of the world today, I know that coming out with a book about war during uh, the first European war in, in a few decades, I'm sure you've had quite a few questions and I've seen you being asked online yeah. quite a few times to explain the, the Russian-Ukrainian conflict. So I was wondering if you could give us maybe one reason out of your five that you think is relevant to the conflict and maybe yeah. a discussion of how your book helps situate what's going on right now in Europe. Right. I mean, I think the overarching reason is the concentration of power in Russia, the fact that this is a personalized autocracy. So that means Putin is an unchecked leader. He, uh, and as I said, he has this private incentive. But since I've said that already, let me add another. You, you hear all these stories in the press of Putin's nationalist ambitions, a vision of a united Ukraine and Russia, the idea that Ukrainian identity doesn't exist. It was this artificial creation of the Soviet Union. Uh, he's restoring the glory of, of, of his nation. He's seeking personal glory. There's all these intangibles, whether it's national glory, some ideology or personal glory. And, and, and that, so that, that could be enough, right? A lot of people think that's why he's doing this. It's not that he's threatened by Ukrainian democracy but it's that he has these other ambitions that make more worthwhile. So the costs are there, doesn't bear all of them, but he bears some of them, costs are there and he's willing to pay them for this intangible incentive. And I think there's definitely truth to that. It might be all the truth. I think the strategic incentive that comes from him being unchecked and wanting to exterminate democracy is very persuasive. And, but at the end of the day, nobody knows what's going on in his head. So it's a little bit guesswork at this moment. But what these two things have in common is the reasons Putin is willing to pay the cost and the reason he can take his country to war to do that. 
So if that's the case, what would you propose sort of other countries do to try to de-escalate the situation or the pass forward if you do think there are unchecked interests? Is it about kind of maximizing potential costs <clears throat> or is it about, I know you talk a lot about kind of narrowing the bargaining space. Is it about opening that up and trying to find yeah. some sort of compromise? I mean, we've kind of spent our ammunition in a large way through sanctions. So sanctions are at the end of the day designed to give to check on check leaders and to provide some counter incentive if they have some intangible incentive. So if you want to commit genocide or you want to exterminate the heretic or you want to pursue your nationalist ideal well, and you're you're empowered to because you're unchecked, um, sanctions are a pretty effective tool. Obviously they weren't enough. Uh, now they were enough presumably to keep Putin from doing all sorts of other nasty things. They're presumably, you know, he could all the things he could have done over the last 20 years, they're enough to keep him potentially from escalating beyond what he's doing right now. Maybe they're enough, especially now that the West has demonstrated its unity, they're enough to actually deter some future people, future dictators from other countries, at least to make, it's like, at least to add speed bumps on their path down this, this route to war. But, um, but they weren't enough, but, but then, but it's not clear that we have a tool to, yeah, having, having sort of, sanctioned to the hilt and not really being able to promise or credibly commit or execute war crime tribunals and things like that. So I, I, I'm not sure there's there's a way to effectively fight this in the very short term. Yeah, well, that's, that's unfortunate, but I think that that makes a lot of sense. Um, okay, so let's shift away from sort of uh, global warfare and maybe a bit about some of the gang work that you've done um, mm -hmm. in your previous work and you bring up in the book. Can you tell us a bit about the billiards war that never was that you discuss? Um, how were gangs able to negotiate a cessation of territory without bloodshed? I think that's something that a lot of people yeah. find um, unlikely given mm -hmm. kind of media portrayals of gangs as sort of, um, you know, bloodthirsty killers with, with no strategic action, but I yeah. think a lot, a lot of work in academia has shown that not to be the case, but perhaps you can talk us through this particular example. Yeah. So I've been working in Medellin for years now in Colombia, which has extremely numerous 400 gangs, um, thousands of young men armed to the hilt, heavy control over territory, making a lot of money selling drugs, not so much involved in international drug trade any longer. It's all domestic. It's all just local retail drug trade. And in the book, I talk about how, uh, well, first of all, I mean, Medellin occasionally has descended into war and has become the most violent place on the planet. But at least for the last 10 years has been extraordinarily peaceful and in the sense that its murder rate is maybe a third of that of Chicago's. And, uh, and this was illustrated to me, how this happened was illustrated to me when a, when a fight broke out in one of the prisons uh, where we visit. Um, and one of the leaders that we talked to there was telling me about how over a game of billiards, two rival gangs had a fight. One side pulled out their guns, fired on the other. And, uh, and that led to a series of revenge killings and a slow escalation until every gang was lined up behind one side or the other and was on the cusp of a citywide war. Um, now it wasn't in their interest to have a citywide war because none of them would make, would, would sort of sell drug money and, and all of them would ha have a risk of death in that. Uh, that situation, but they're unchecked. They would have had their own intangible incentives like revenge. So it's not glory, it's not nationalism, but revenge is real uh, and other factors. And uh, and so they could have gone to war, but that's when the 
the the higher level of the criminal bosses stepped in and they stood to lose even more if 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 they went to war and so they they sanctioned those who would go to war they warned them don't go down this route um so they used a lot of the tools we do they uh provided a bargaining table they call it la oficina the office and and so I, in the book i talk about how they're a little bit like the u.n security council of medellin right they're the big powers are kind of unequal uh they use force they're selective and when they choose to to, to to enforce peace and when they don't and so it's not precisely fair but it's sometimes effective uh and it does break down and that's when managing does become the most violent place on the planet but the rest of the time they call it the pact of the machine gun el pacto de fusil um they they more or less keep the peace in Medellin. yeah it's fascinating to think that people who have such heightened emotions at a point in time you see individuals on your side, new family members be killed, and you can actually come together and bargain at that stage or that mm -hmm. um, setting. What is it about kind of emotion? How do your tools for stopping or at least pausing conflict or kind of retributive killings play into the idea of, of getting at people's emotion and what to do yeah. when emotion is driving some of this retributive violence? Yeah. So we talked about unchecked leaders. We talked about intangible incentives. Like a third bucket of the five is what I call misperceptions. And I thought about calling it misperceptions and passions because of the primary role of emotions. And I actually ended up, emotions are important, but I actually ended up dialing that back because I thought emotions understand help us understand a huge amount of individual violence. So I do some work as well, not just in Medellin and West Africa, but here in Chicago with gang members um, and a lot of that, a lot of the shootings, not all, but a lot of the shootings in Chicago are sort of the product of hot reactive violence in the moment. Um, that's not so true for larger actors and groups, especially over long wars. Uh, and so the, what we actually want to think about, I think, is, is what are the kinds of psychological mistakes and the misperceptions and the biases we have that where emotions might be relevant, but that are much more relevant for big bureaucratic strategic actors over years. Um, and, and that's where I think our ability to persistently overestimate our own abilities to be overconfident and our ability to misperceive our enemy, to attribute to them motives that are not true, often because we see them through a poisonous lens, I think are, are actually really critical, right? So, so it's, it's less about, oh, I'm angry and I'm gonna strike back at, at this nation. I think it's more about this long-standing latent hostility among other psychological biases that lead me to overestimate my own abilities and demonize and underestimate and mischaracterize my enemy's actions. And these miscalculations just lead you to get this, this sort of nuanced bargaining wrong and can help propel you towards conflict. Is this where sort of your work on CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy would come in, sort of these interpersonal instances? Mm -hmm. I don't know as much about that, but I know that you have spoken very highly of it, and there are a number mm -hmm. of kind of effective programs in Chicago and elsewhere that have shown it to be effective. How, how exactly does that yeah. work, and are there any implications for kind of larger-scale violence, or is this more kind of an individualized, focused intervention? I think it's primarily important for more individualized, hot, reactive violence. And, and imparting the skills 
people to sort of deal with these situations differently in that moment and to resist the automatic reactions. It's proven to be very effective. That said, um, I think there are ways in which um, this operates at a group level. So again, I don't think it's primary. Of course, it helps if we all sort of slow down our reactions. And if we don't, also I talked about these persistent poisonous frames that we might hold an enemy and the, the ethnic group, the, the, the enemy ideology. Um, I think cognitive behavioral techniques can help us get beyond these rigid negative distortions. And, uh, and many of us, these principles of skill building that are embedded in cognitive behavior therapy, you can kind of think of that as like remedial training for people who didn't get it through other means. And so dealing with conflict, in, it just sort of, it, it permeates our preschool education, it permeates the lessons somebody gets on their grandmother's knee, it permeates uh, so many aspects of society. And so the extent that as a culture, and there's a lot of variation, but the extent that our society and our culture has embedded some of these skills and norms of nonviolence. I think it can not only reduce a lot of this hot reactive individual and small group violence, but would also maybe reduce some of these misperceptions. That said, CBT for world leaders is not like the fastest path to peace. Well, we'll see if we can get uh, Putin enrolled and we can run a yeah, exactly. skill RCT and we'll, we'll make a, yeah, I'm sure that we could get that funded if we, we had the chance. Um, you talk a bit there about sort of ethnic groups and these types of frames that might make conflict more or less likely. And, and you say in the book um, that places where ethnic groups are more geographically dispersed and intermingled seem to be less polarized and conflict prone than ones where groups are concentrated together. Um, mm -hmm. And you bring up an anecdote about um, a woman named Sundiata Keita um, looking at the US. Why is this the case? Um, what is it about sort of concentration that yeah. makes these things so heightened? So the basic principle we started out with, which says that war is costly, therefore I don't want to do this, is pretty simple. And it, and it doesn't even need me to care about the costs to you. It just needs me to care about the costs to me. So we can be totally polarized uh, and be loathing in peace. And we have strong incentives not to fight. But then imagine a world where actually on top of that, my business depends on somebody's participation in the other group, or I, my kids go to school or I live across the street. And so I have a little bit of empathy or, or there's just a notion of human rights or, or some ideology that makes me feel some sort of camaraderie with the other group. That means that any cost of war to them, even no matter how small, little I care about that is going to actually add to my cost as well. I'm going to, and any, any suffering that you, they face, uh, I'll, I'll share and any, but any benefits they, they enjoy, I will enjoy. And so that's just going to actually expand the, expand the costliness of war. And so this, any kind of interdependence, whether it's economic or social or ideological is going to be like a buffer. It's going to sort of stitch us closer together and insulate us against all these other things that would make us, make us, um, more fragile. And, and, you know, people worry about the United States becoming much more polarized and indeed it has, I think. But we don't need, polarization isn't sufficient to get us to conflict usually, which is maybe the small good news we can take away from the situation. So you anticipated my follow-up question. I think the, the most Twitter-ready topics here were Russia and Ukraine and then the US, as people always want to imply. 
um, sort of wide-scale violence scenarios yeah. in the United States. I think that's a whole subgenre of, of fiction. Um, but I was wondering if you think the not necessarily just growing polarization, but growing geographic polarization mm-hmm. and the actual shift of you know Democrats to urban areas away from more rural Republican areas, if that would increase the likelihood of conflict or if you see it as kind of unrelated, there's just not enough other factors. Yeah. Any, any sort of spatial segregation, political polarization is going to reduce that interdependence and is going to potentially make it a little bit more fragile. But I, you know, I still think the big lesson over the last two years, especially since the January 6th insurrection, it's just, it hasn't happened again. Um, It hasn't happened, I think, for several reasons, but one of them is I think most people on both sides recoiled from the possibility. It was not just repugnant, but it was just so frightening and costly that that was a a, a huge disincentive to ever help let that happen again. Um, and so I, it, again, so it's this whole idea of war being costly, so it being unlikely. Now we want buffers. The thing that makes me hopeful about the United States is unlike in many conflicts in the book, I talk about Northern Ireland, where in response to these kinds of events, there's a lot of wide scale repression. It's pretty indiscriminate. Uh, that generates a lot of anger and retaliatory attacks. I think the US um, federal government, especially the FBI, is very good at being rules-based, being law-based, and being very targeted. And so they are trying to identify these people and punish the specific offenders or identify them before they do these things and then frankly entrap them. But it's so targeted rather than being indiscriminate that it's not generating the same kind of wild-scale grievance that I think uh um the repression and and the reaction in northern ireland generated and so that to me reduces the likelihood that this sort of escalates yeah so following up on that i think part of the reason i worry about countries that haven't had sort of wide-scale conflict Mm -hmm. is that it seems intuitive that the further you get from you know the world wars and these kind of wide-scale atrocities that involve particular countries not just the us but other countries that haven't had you know, civil wars or other types of domestic-based conflict, it could become less salient. We may forget how terrible mm-hmm. violence and conflict are. Do you think that's true? Or do you think we have some sort of, there's enough reporting on violence and conflict and we sort of understand comparatively yeah. how atrocious, you know, how much worse violence can be as an outcome than some of these other factors? I think you're saying, is it possible that there's a misperception, a bias that sort of underestimates the cost? Could a society sure. systematically underestimate the cost of violence? And I think it's it's certainly plausible. I would say, as a as like an empirical matter, when I went back and I looked at conflict after conflict situation and situation that became peaceful or not, that wasn't like one of the misperceptions that leapt out at me is. Uh, I think it was it, the one one of the ones that leapt out as me is much more common was actually maybe overestimating your side's chances of victory and perhaps underestimating the length and difficulty of the war. So it's not so much the violence wasn't seen as horrific, but it's it's not been it's been fairly common to sort of think it'll be over quickly. And uh, that doesn't happen all the time, but it happens often enough that I think it's a contributing factor. Okay. Well, that's good to hear. Uh, I'll, I'll put that out of my list of worries for now. Yeah. Um, in the second half of your book, you kind of shift towards solutions. 
I mean, you look specifically at kind of forms of prevention and conflict management. Mm-hmm. Um, what tenet of sort of peace building and peace preservation that you advo- uh, advocate for is currently most underutilized, would you say? That's interesting. You know, one of the most utilized in international conflicts and civil wars is mediation. And that's one of the least utilized in urban violence between armed gangs. I think the idea of trying to build communication channels and means to bargain and means to credibly signal and save face and exchange information between armed groups and cities, whether it's the United States or a lot of Latin America, is a really natural thing. It's hard for the government to do that for obvious reasons, but civil society rarely steps in, except in, I would say, relatively exceptional ad hoc cases, you know, a a church being very involved, maybe an influential community leader, maybe an ex-gang leader who's become a social worker. And so it happens on much more of an ad hoc basis. And that's, I I think that could be a, I I think by treating so much gang violence as individual hot reactive violence and not thinking about some of the group dynamics and strategic forces, we, we spend too much time on, we, well, we don't spend too much time on things like CBT because that should be done more as well but we don't talk enough about the strategic group dynamics that might take place. And then we don't use these strategies that are just sort of bread and butter for international operations. How much of this is is a supply side issue, both in terms of kind of the availability of weapons of war, as well as the availability of these kind of solutionary mechanisms, standing mediation councils and the ability to communicate between groups. Is there, you mentioned earlier kind of FBI's targeted um, use of uh, their own monitoring right. systems. What is it, how can we kind of focus on these preventionary mechanisms by building up the capacity to reduce yeah. supply on one side and, and improve supply on the other? I mean, I think I, I think there is uh, an undersupply to some degree. It's not the only reason. You know, actually a good example is a friend and a colleague of mine, Darren Baber, has a nice paper where he, um, he noticed, he notes that Truces and temporary truces and peace talks are breaking out all the time, every every week of every year, in a pretty uniform way. Uh, but the mediators, if you're if you're having a civil war, for example, or an ethnic conflict, getting a mediator is much more likely in July and August, and that's because there's just a ton of North American and European diplomats and whatever, like on summer holiday, all right. So they're not busy. And so the first of all, the fact that you're more likely to get a mediator if your truce happens to break out in July or August first tells you that there's probably like an undersupply. And then he, and you know, that's not exactly like a randomized experiment, but he, I think he persuasively shows that pieces tend to be more durable if your truce just happens to break out in those two months, suggesting the mediators are doing something. And, and we just have so much theory and, and some evidence to like suggest that mediators should help alleviate some of these problems that lead to conflict that that that's super plausible to me um so we could use them more at the international level and as i said it would be terrific to start applying those insights to city level violence too yeah and one of the other sort of interventions that you talk about which is the concept of enforcement which obviously envelops entire legal systems and is very broad but you um it stands out to me as kind of one of the most essential but also one of the most difficult to foster and sustain. Um, So what would you say, why is it so difficult to develop legitimate enforcement mechanisms? And how might we better learn as you detail in the book uh, from sort of informal solutions rather than 
the, maybe the formal uh, UN Security Council type forms of, of sanction promotion that we probably associate most closely? Yeah, I mean, predictable rules and consequences for using violence that are meted out in a way that's perceived as just and one where those people who meet it out are not themselves subject to abusing their power, personal gain, is like the great project of humanity where it's frankly kind of a miracle and a marvel that in so many societies have succeeded, not just in the state and having accountable Czech states that can do this, but also having all these civil society mechanisms that meet out other kinds of justice, even if it's just social sanctions and praise and consternation and things that aren't necessarily force. So, and, and the magic, the magic combination is you not only need like a civil society or a police or a state that can mete out these things with capacity, maybe basically be effective. Like they have to be effective on a large scale and they have to be, have their power checked enough that they can't just turn into criminal thugs themselves, which is which of course many do. Uh, and, and so uh, I guess I would say like, it's been a very slow path and, and people, especially in the United States would sort of think there's still a ways to go, which I agree with. Um, but if you work as I do in societies where those don't exist, like I think you also really learn to treasure them and just see how important they are. Yeah. I think the, rehabilitative aspect of that is fascinating. I think it's probably easier to build something from the ground up than it is to kind of uh, reboot a system that's lost its legitimacy, particularly in, in these enforcement claims. I don't know. Yeah, you- I mean, well, this is the thing with a state, like once a state exists, I mean, it's not, you know, private firms can die and be reborn in new firms and the state will never die very seldom. And if it does, it's just a huge painful glorious so i think most states do have to reform themselves slowly and and they have because it's they're not going anywhere or if, if if or the prospect of them leaving for a period of time is pretty horrendous so um so yeah i maybe that's the only place where i'd push back i would say that i think it's not as fast or as effective as a lot of people would hope but but the slow patient uh shift to like a more checked more just more effective state is like is, is, I don't know. I'm not sure that there's many more successful paths than just working on that on the margin. Got it. Yeah. Well, I encourage both encouraging and uh, discouraging at the same time. Yeah. So something we have to keep working towards. Um, so just getting to the end here, I thought the, so the final chapter you discuss 10 piecemeal commandments um, for, for readers and people who are interested in, in preventing conflict. And I don't want to get into them all, but I thought one final one might be a good way to end this conversation. You talk about, you say that readers should find, find their margin. Um, mm. What does this mean? And for readers out there who listen to this conversation, particularly maybe that bit there at the end where we're talking about reforming entire states and legitimacy of political, legal institutions, how might readers go about or listeners go about actually, you know, making an impact and making the world a bit more peaceful than it was, you know, a few weeks ago. Well, you know, throughout the book, I mean, a lot of the evidence that I cite sort of shows that little innovations in making peace 
little rules changes at home or broader little little things actually all move the needle on peace and stability a bit um and it could be increasing the accountability of leaders by making it a little bit harder to buy votes or to disenfranchise people those seem to have real effects not always and not you know, but but those have real effects and they're valuable for other reasons. They're kind of intrinsically valuable. And so 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 one message is first to say that most progress is made on the margin. And that if anything, like bold grand steps, which is about what a lot of the, the that chapter is about, often go awry. And that a, a patient trial and error of approach of someone who's attentive to to um to making change, I think can matter. And I think that's true. I think that's certainly true if you're working at the level of a city. I think it's certainly true if you're working at the level of your country. Uh, I think it's a little harder and more challenging to see that if you're in the State Department or the United Nations and you're trying. But even then, I think the idea that these mediators getting involved in international conflict and helping prove information, I think there's a lot of things that can happen on the margin through our in our international, in the international realm as well. And so I just encourage people to find the margin that they are passionate about and, and that where they, uh, where, 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 you know, where they just are gonna get up in the morning and, and sort of engage in that patient trial and error and not get too discouraged and then stick with it. Well, that's great. We usually don't end on optimistic notes, but I'll, I'll say, um, is there anything, if you could have readers or listeners to this podcast sort of take away one thing from the book or maybe encourage them to, to buy the book what is it that you would say is, is the main takeaway or something that they'll... Right. I mean, I, I'd return to where you started this out, which is enemies prefer to loathe in peace because war is costly. And so just sort of try to think about every reason, every path to peace is rolling back one of those reasons for war. And so those are the margins that you're working on. And so, and, and, and I think it's just a way to sort of make sense of all of this all the confusion of reasons and options that you see, that's kind of the purpose of the book. It's not to say this is the right way and this is the wrong way and these other books are wrong. It's a way to say, here are all these ideas and books and things that you've read and just here's a way to organize how to think about them. Now come to your own decision about what you think the root of war was or the path to peace, but do it through this lens, which is just going to help you make sense of the mess. Thank you again for being on. Uh, really appreciate it. The book is Why We Fight, The Roots of War and Pass to Peace. Um, and you can find Chris Blattman's work pretty much all over the internet. And his blog is also excellent. So thank you again, Chris. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Wittstock. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback and if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.